everyone. So before we jump in today, uh, horrible week, right? It's been a terrible last couple of weeks. And I'm, as I said two weeks ago, the worst thing I think I could ever do as your pastor is to ignore the abuse crisis in our church. And praise God, Archbishop Akula feels the same way. And so he's asked all of the parishes in the diocese today uh, to read a letter from him. So this is from Archbishop. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I write to you today with great sadness to respond to yet another scandal that has shaken the church. Even though many of the details in the grand jury report in Pennsylvania had already been reported, the full release was still undeniably shocking and its contents devastating to read. We face the undeniable fact that the church has gone through a dark and shameful time. And while a clear majority of the report addresses incidents occurring 20 plus years in the past, we know that sin has a lasting impact and amends need to be made. Many children have suffered from cruel behavior for which they bore no responsibility. I offer my apology for any way that the church, its cardinals, bishops, priests, deacons, or laity have failed to live up to Jesus' call to holiness. I especially offer this apology to the survivors, for the past abuses, and for those who knowingly allowed the abuse to occur. I also apologize to the clergy who have been faithful and are deeply discouraged by these reports. Everyone has the right to experience the natural feelings of grief as they react to this trauma, shock, denial, anger, bargaining, and depression. I want you to know that I feel these emotions as well, especially anger. I believe the best way to recover is a return to God's plan for human sexuality. In responding to the Archbishop McCarrick revelations, I have written at length about the spiritual battle we are facing. That letter can be found on the Archdiocese webpage, archden.org. I ask everyone to pray for the church in Pennsylvania. Though these dioceses over the last 20 years have greatly evolved from how they are described in the grand jury report, the church must face its past sins with great patience responsibility, repentance, and conversion. Creating an environment where children are safe from abuse remains a top priority in the Archdiocese of Denver. In our Archdiocese, we require background checks and safe environment training for all priests, deacons, employees, and any volunteers who are around children. During this training, everyone is taught their role as a mandatory reporter and what steps to follow if they witness or even suspect abuse. We also require instruction for children and young people where they are taught about safe and appropriate boundaries and to tell a trusted adult if they ever feel uncomfortable. We participate in regular independent audits of our practices and we have been found in compliance every year since the national audit began in 2003. Finally, while we have made strides to improve our archdiocese, I am aware that the wounds of past transgressions remain. 
We are committed to helping victims of abuse, and we are willing to meet with anyone who believes they have been mistreated. I urge all of us to pray for holiness, for the virtues, and for a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Only he and he alone can heal us, forgive us, and bring us to the Father. Be assured of my prayers for all of you, and most especially the victims of any type of sexual abuse committed by anyone. Sincerely yours in Christ, Samuel J. Aquila, Archbishop of Bangor. So this is a, it's a dark time. We all know that. If you weren't here two weeks ago, I want to ask you to, I want you to go back, if you go to our website, and two weeks ago I preached on the scandal with Cardinal McCarrick. And much of what I want to say about this greater scandal that's in our midst now are similar thoughts. So I encourage you to go back and look at that. But I do want to talk just briefly about it. It's providential today that where we're at in our scriptures in our second reading is in Ephesians chapter 5. And there's kind of a twofold response, I think, that has to happen. The first thing is that and we'll, we'll get to this in Ephesians, is that you and I have to set things right. Right? As Christians, we don't bury our heads in the sand when there's been problems, and in right now, devastating, horrific, sinful things in our church from those who should be better, those who are called to a higher level of holiness. Right? We don't ignore that. We don't pretend it didn't happen. And we don't pretend it's someone else's problem. In the Eucharist, in our baptism, we are one church, and this affects all of us. And every one of us, we have a role to play in setting things right. And let me, right now in Ephesians 5, just in the beginning of this chapter, listen to what St. Paul says. And what I want you to hear is that Christians are not, some, there's, a, there's a gospel out there right now that says Christianity is all sugar and sweetness and tender feelings. That's not the gospel. It never was, it never will be. The gospel is much more radical than that. It is much more bold. Right? The gospel is something that is the greatest love the world has ever known that makes demands of everything. So St. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.3. He says, but immorality, and I, I want to note that word. When you see the word immorality in the New Testament, almost always the Greek word is porneia. You know what modern word we get from the word porneia. Porneia means sexual immorality. So when it says immorality, it almost always means sexual immorality. But all immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is fitting among the saints. Be sure of this, that no immoral or impure man or one who is covetous, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. 
the early church was famous. We were famous for two things as Christians. We were famous for believing in the resurrection, which everyone thought was crazy. Because most of the ancient world thought that our bodies were evil. And that our spirits were good, but our bodies were bad. And we were famous for chastity. We were absolutely famous for that. Today it's the opposite. We have to recover that. St. Paul is incredibly strong here and in many other places. My mind goes to Galatians chapter 5. Paul is tremendously strong about sins of the flesh within the church. He goes on, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do you hear that? We oftentimes think that the, the wrath of God is something that was only in the Old Testament. It's not true. It is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And I want to jump, this is uh, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Take no part in the works of darkness, but instead expose them. The things that we're learning right now are terrible. And it's hard. My heart just broke when that report came out. And I thought of all the great things God is doing right now in our church, and I mean that both here at Lourdes, but I mean in the Church of the United States, God is doing amazing things. And this is devastating. And so many people who might have been open to the church now won't be. Brothers and sisters, the first thing that we have to do is we must, out of love, we have to purge the evil from our midst. The demands of the gospel are real. They are serious, and they are directed to every one of us does not mean that there isn't mercy. There's always mercy. But St. Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, Paul excommunicates people. And we need to do that again. <laughs> because and he does it out of love because it tells them this sin is so serious you have no place in God's family behaving in this manner. And so we have to fix that. We have to be serious about purging evil from our midst. We have to stop drinking in the culture of sexuality. We all know it, don't we? We live in the most disordered sexually culture probably in all of history. And it's affected our clergy, and it's affected us, and we have to purge that. All of it. All of it has to go. We have to do that. The second thing is so simple, and this is where I encourage you, go back, listen to my homily from two weeks ago. The response to darkness is never despair. Right? Because Paul has this great line in Romans 3.23, he says, oh no, it's earlier than that, hold on. Someone will correct me if I don't get this right. It's Romans 3.4. But he says, what if some were unfaithful? 
right? What if there were people in the covenant that were unfaithful as they have been right now? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man be false. As I said two weeks ago, and I hope you're the same, I am not a Catholic for Pope Francis. I am not a Catholic even for the great men and women who helped me understand and grow in my faith. I am a Catholic for him. And that's it. That's the only reason I'm a Catholic is because Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church. He gave her authority, and the response to sin in the church And so I, my prayer and my hope, brothers and sisters, God is doing amazing things right here in our midst. And that means that you and I can't say this is a Pennsylvania problem. This is a clergy problem. This is our problem. And my prayer is that you and I would be lights in a dark time. When people look at your life and they say, I really struggle with this scandal. How could men of God do such horrific things? And it's a, it's, it's a mystery of evil. But then they'll see you. And they'll say, how does that person live with such joy, with such purity, with such self-sacrifice? I'm going to be talking to you more about this in the weeks to come. I'm going to propose some things for us to do together as a family, as, at Our Lady of Lords, that we can make reparation, that we can take on penance for the sins of others, that we can be part of the solution. Okay, it's really hard to move on after that, but I, but I have to. Okay, I don't normally teach on this all the time, but now. We have to talk about the Eucharist. That's why we're here. That's why we're Catholics. So last, or yesterday, and at the, the last Mass, we had Deacon Hal, and he's, he's here helping out Deacon Daryl. And I had a wedding yesterday at St. Vincent de Paul, and Deacon Hal is assigned there. So I told everybody that St. Vincent de Paul is totally lame. Which is true. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually a great place. But I had a wedding there yesterday. And here's what I want you to get today about our gospel, about the Eucharist, and what I want you to understand about your faith and my faith. So I had a wedding mass. And it was a couple of our parishioners who now married and they're, they're, they're going to be moving soon. But anytime I say a wedding, it's always a mixed crowd, almost always. Right? You'll have Catholics there, but you'll also have people who either are not Catholic or they're not Christians. And you can just kind of feel that. And so at weddings, I love to preach to the couple getting married, but I love to preach to the congregation. I love to try to reach out to them. And so yesterday I was doing that. And the homily kind of started, and it was mostly, it felt like a pretty unchurched crowd. And I started... And, like, 80% of the faces in the congregation were like this. And I want you to know that I can see your faces. 
and I can see them here. And there have been times here in Lords where I'll be preaching, and there are people going. And I'm like, Lord, may you smite that person. No, not really. But I do see it, so watch yourself. But I was preaching, and, when I, and I started to hit on, and I wanted to say this. In our culture today, we all know this, in marriage, fewer marriages are happening right now than any time in American history. By far. Not by like two percentage points, but by a lot. People don't believe in marriage. The divorce rate is 50%. The divorce rate among first-time marriages is closer to 70% in our culture. You don't hear that stat too much, but it's true. First-time marriages have almost a 70% divorce rate in our society. And so I love talking about how people don't get married today. And I was talking about this yesterday. And so they say, you know, divorce is awful, and people's hearts are torn apart, and it causes such damage. Why get married? And so people today, they don't, they don't get married and have kids. They split a lease and have dogs, right? That's what they do, and we all know it. They split a lease and they have dogs. And I was talking and preaching and I said to the congregation, I understand on a certain level, but I believe in real love. And I love preaching about this. When you love someone, what you start saying is you stop saying, you stop saying words like if, I will love you if, I will love you when. I'll split a lease with you so we can get out if things don't go well. As Balthazar says, real love desires to make a vow. Right? When you love someone, what do you want to do? You want to make the biggest promise you can make. Even if you know it's going to be something that's hard to live up to, you'll make a promise that says, I love you always without condition, whatever may come, I promise to be faithful to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, to love you and to honor you all the days of my life. And I don't know about you, I, well, actually I do. You want to be loved that way, and you want to love that way. And so do I. In my life, I don't want people who love me kind of. I want a depth of love in my life that is overflowing, beyond words. And so I was preaching about this, and there was this young woman, and you had all the dead faces. Everybody's tired, and is this going to go much longer? And there was one young woman on the left side, and her face, you could just tell, it just lit up. And you could tell she was someone who wasn't normally a churchgoer. And her face lit up because she knew that that's what she wanted. A love that dares to give everything. And here's the connection. That's why Jesus gave us the Eucharist. Our gospel today in John 6, you all have to know John 6. If you don't know John 6, I will find out somehow and you're going to get, you know, 
I can't say beat up by a priest now. I'm like, Mr. Scandal. But if you don't know John 6, you need to know John chapter 6. That was our gospel today. Jesus says, truly, truly, when he says that, he's making an oath. When you hear him say, truly, truly, or amen, amen, when he says that, he's saying, I swear to God that this is true. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. You know, some people want to say it's a metaphor for believing his teaching. Nowhere in scripture. Have you ever talked to someone and they're like, they're, they're teaching you and you're, maybe you're in class and you say to your professor, you know, I believe you're teaching so much, I could just eat your flesh. No. Eating someone's flesh has nothing to do with their teaching. Nowhere in scripture does it ever mean that. Not a single time. People make that up because they don't want to believe that it's truly the flesh of Jesus Christ. It never once in Scripture means teaching. Jesus gets more explicit. My flesh is true food. The, the Greek word there is aletheis, which means real. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Jesus could not get any more clear if he tried. This happens at the beginning of John 6. We're told this happens on Passover. And someday when you go to Israel, you have to go to Israel. This, the, at the end of the chapter, we find out this is in the synagogue in Capernaum. When you go to Israel, you can go to that synagogue on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the bottom stones... We're there the day that Jesus Christ taught this. It's amazing. I have stood in that synagogue, the place where our Savior taught us about the Eucharist. It's amazing. But it's on Passover. And guess what? This is one year exactly before the Last Supper. One year exactly, same feast. The Last Supper is on the Passover. And think about that. At the Last Supper, Jesus takes bread and he says, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body. And think about the apostles saying, remember, remember last Passover? Remember when Jesus spent all that time talking about how we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And remember how everyone left? And here we are one year later. Take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body. And here's where this all comes together. I know, sorry, this is popping out. You know the little fuzzy thing that goes on the end? You think, yes, please, no. You know the fuzzy thing? It fell off. That's why that's doing that. I'm sorry. This all comes together, brothers and sisters. I want someone to love me, not a little bit, but with everything. And too often as Christians, we think Christianity is a system of things to believe and a moral conduct to follow. And both of those things are necessary and true, but they're not Christianity. 
Christianity is not a system of teachings. It is not a morality. It has both of those things. Christianity is Jesus Christ living inside of you. That's what Christianity is. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. Think about that. Jesus' entire life, everything he is, is because the Father lives in him, and he in the Father. Don't you want to love like that? With your spouse or those of you who hope to be married someday. Have you ever loved someone so much you just, you just wish you could live inside of them? It's almost as if your heart lives inside another person. That's what Christ says about he and the Father. As the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. You see, Christianity isn't about its teachings. They're true, and they're necessary, but they're not first. What Christianity is, is Jesus, when you live inside of me. And I don't live a moral life because I know it's right. I live it because the fire of your love fills my soul with life. And how could I do anything but live the life I'm supposed to? Brothers and sisters, the answer to scandal is holiness. That's always the answer. If we want to fix this, if we want to be a light in the darkness, of course there are other things that have to happen, but at the center, the absolute centerpiece is for you to be a real Catholic. Not in name, not because you were baptized merely because Jesus Christ dwells in your soul. And if you're open to that and if you give your heart to him, people will know it. <laughs> They'll see it in the way you walk down the street. G.K. Chesterton used to say that you could t a Christian, that Christ dwelling in them changes their life so dramatically that everything changes and you could actually even tell someone's a Christian by the way they climb a tree. I don't really know what that looks like, actually. <laughs> But that's his point, is that everything changes. Everything. So why the Eucharist? The Eucharist is that our faith is not a theory. It's a romance. It's not a textbook. It's not a book of rules. It's a relationship with the one who loved us with everything he had. When you receive the Eucharist today, brothers and sisters, let it renew your life. Let it change everything. Right? When Jesus, just like that couple at that wedding, when Jesus loved us, he didn't love us partially. 
He did not say to his bride, the church, I will love you as long as there's not scandal. I will love you as long as you're holy. I will love you as long as you're attentive at Mass. Jesus said, everything, all that I have, all that I am, I will lay it down. That's what you receive in the Eucharist. And that's what our faith is. It's a relationship with the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus purged the evil from our midst. Lord, grant every one of us repentance. Grant me repentance for my sins. Lord, may I never treat my relationship with you as a mere set of rules. Lord, may I love you the way you love me. When I receive the Eucharist, you who give me everything and you who live inside of me, Jesus, may I give my life in return. Lord, bless our church. Grant us joy and life. And Jesus, grant us faith, hope, Let us now stand and confess our faith.